This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Overcoming Adversity and Trials. In the first half, Jeffrey S. McClellan shares his address, Thy Troubles to Bless. Then in the second half, Beth Luthi speaks on Thy Faith to Do His Will. Dark clouds filled the Provo sky on April 15, 2003. It was the due date for our second daughter, but there were still no signs of imminent delivery. My wife, Christine, was concerned that she had not felt the baby move for a day or so. She felt urgently that we needed to go to the hospital for a test. I thought she was being overly cautious, but we went. I remember our cheerful nurse that morning chatting away as she hooked Christine up to monitors and quickly found a heartbeat. All was well. With the monitor running, the nurse left the three of us, Christine, one-year-old Lizzie, and me, chatting pleasantly in the room. Suddenly, something changed. The reassuring, regular beep of the heart monitor stopped. We called for the cheerful nurse, who assured us that this happens. Babies move or monitors slip. It would just take a second to find the heartbeat again. I remember the nurse's face as she searched for the heartbeat, her smile fading, her eyes becoming serious still searching. She called for another nurse to try. No, she couldn't find it either. Oh, wait, there it was. No, that was Christine's heartbeat. And suddenly there was a sudden rush of nurses into the room. There were calls for doctors and hurried explanations. I sat in the corner holding Lizzie on my lap, watching with a growing helpless dread. Emergency C-section, they said, and they rushed out the door with my wife. Lizzie and I retreated to the hallway, where in a few minutes a cart sped by with a too-white, too-still, too-quiet baby on it. Was that our baby? It wasn't clear. In a room behind glass windows, doctors painstakingly inserted an IV through the tiny umbilical cord. Yes, I was told, that is your baby. Not breathing, faint heartbeat, lost a lot of blood. Mother is fine. The baby, Caroline, we would call her, was placed on a gurney and prepped for a helicopter ride to Primary Children's Medical Center. My father had arrived. We slipped our hands beneath the plastic shield that covered my little girl and placed them on her tiny head with its dark, wispy hair. In the name of Jesus Christ and by his priesthood, I blessed her with a strong heart and lungs. I blessed her with a full recovery. Then Caroline was whisked out the door to the waiting helicopter. Lizzie went home with my parents. Christine stayed at the hospital to recover, and I drove to Salt Lake, chasing the helicopter. I felt the sudden fragmentation of our family, each of my girls now in someone else's care, and me driving alone through the rain. Over the next hours and days, there were a lot of tests and questions, a lot of indefinite answers and tearful conversations. Family members, friends, and ward members joined their faith to ours in earnest fasting and prayer. Gratefully, Caroline lived. In some ways, the blessing I pronounced that day was fulfilled directly. She has a healthy heart and strong lungs. She did not, however, fully recover, as I had stated in the blessing. Her loss of blood, the cause of which is still unknown, meant a lack of oxygen to her brain, which suffered severe damage. Fifteen years later, Caroline is still stuck at about a three-month-old level of development. She cannot walk or crawl or roll over. She cannot talk. 
and we're unsure what she understands. Her eyes and ears function, but it is unclear how much she can process of what she sees or hears. She has frequent seizure-like tremors, eats through a tube in her stomach, receives a special diet supplemented by a variety of medications, and regularly sees a diverse assortment of doctors. Sometimes, frequently, Caroline becomes sad. She will cry and cry, and neither the doctors nor we can determine what is wrong or how to help. We just have to wait it out and pray. The good news is that Caroline is adorable. She has the biggest smile and the greatest laugh. She loves hugs and kisses, a cold wind on her face, and the rumble strips on the freeway. (laughs) Caroline likes to hear our voices, and we like to hear hers. She makes cute, soft ah sounds, and really loud ah sounds, sometimes in the middle of the night. She enjoys our regular gatherings in her room for morning devotional or for singing and praying before bed. She smiles big when we sing, We're so glad when Daddy comes home, which we sing every day. (laughs) We love Caroline. We are so grateful. She's part of our family, and I appreciate how she has changed my life. But I wish things were different. I wish she could sing and run and argue with her sister. I am often sad for her because her life is hard. I worry that she may be uncomfortable or in pain or bored or scared, and we don't know how to help. We still have dark days and long nights and unanswered questions. We also have love and joy and hope. But a life like Caroline's raises questions of faith. Why was she not healed according to that first priesthood blessing? Why did the hundreds, thousands of faithful prayers not yield the miracle we hoped for? How does God let such an innocent, precious child suffer? Perhaps you have similar questions. We all have circumstances that try our faith. Times when, despite faithful living and earnest pleading, things don't go according to the plan of happiness we envision or the divine promises we expect. You may struggle with a persistent mental illness or chronic pain. Maybe you fight a stubborn addiction. Your grief may be lingering singleness or disheartening infertility. Maybe you feel weighed down by unemployment, temptation, or the death of someone you love. You may pray ceaselessly for someone who has lost faith, or perhaps you wrestle with your own doubts. Whatever your specific trial may be, we all endure seasons of distress that test the limits of our faith, afflictions that may cause us to question whether what we believe can still be true, even in the face of such overwhelming obstacles to belief. We may feel downtrodden and defeated, confused and crumbling. We may feel that God is distant and that we are hanging by an ever-so-thin thread of faith over a gaping chasm of despair. These are the deep waters of our lives when we feel the rivers of sorrow threatening to overflow upon us. In periods of such extremity, how do we, how do you, sustain faith? A few days before Caroline's dramatic entrance into this world, Christine and I read a talk from the October 2002 General Conference by Elder Lance B. Wickman. It was a moving, thought-provoking talk, though it seemed somewhat removed from us at the time. 
A few days after Caroline's birth, we read Elder Wickman's talk again, now finding it directly relevant. Elder and Sister Wickman had lost a young son, Adam, to a childhood illness despite many prayers and a powerful priesthood blessing. Adam's oldest brother, Matt, is now a BYU English professor. Yesterday, Matt told me that tomorrow, July 11th, is the 44th anniversary of Adam's death. They also, we later learned, have a disabled daughter named Courtney. To those who face similar tests of faith, Elder Wickman said, As to the healing of the sick, the Lord has clearly said, He that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. All too often we overlook the qualifying phrase, and is not appointed unto death, or, we might add, unto sickness or handicap. Please do not despair when fervent prayers have been offered and priesthood blessings performed and your loved one makes no improvement or even passes from mortality. Take comfort in the knowledge that you did everything you could. The Lord, who inspires the blessings and who hears every earnest prayer, called him home nonetheless. Elder Wickman shared three seldom-sung verses from our opening hymn today, How Firm a Foundation. Since then, this has become my favorite hymn. The final verse says this, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. After Caroline's birth, we felt exquisitely the need for a firm foundation of faith, as it seemed that all hell was endeavoring to shake us. We were, and are, learning to lean oh so heavily on Jesus for repose. Two years ago, we were preparing for Caroline's second year at Young Women's Camp. Christine had rented a private cabin near the camp where she could have a clean place for feeding and diaper changing and where Caroline could be loud in the middle of the night. A few days before camp, however, Caroline got sad, really sad. We knew we were likely in for a hard week. Our home teachers and I gave Caroline a priesthood blessing, and within an hours she started to calm down. Caroline and Christine had a wonderful, rejuvenating week at camp. It was a girls' camp miracle a profound evidence to us of the power of the priesthood and of God's love and mercy. A year later, Christine was again prepared to take Caroline to camp. And again, Caroline got sad. A day before they left, I had a strong spiritual impression that I should give Caroline a blessing and that I should not wait. Without even telling Christine, I immediately gave Caroline a brief priesthood blessing. Then I waited for the miracle. Caroline was still sad when she and Christine went to camp, and she stayed sad. She was miserable. It was exhausting. And after a couple of days, Christine and Caroline came home early, where Caroline remained sad. We've had many such experiences with Caroline, blessings that have been obviously fulfilled, contrasted with blessings that seem to have fallen to the ground unnoticed. For years, I struggled with how to have faith when giving blessings or praying for heavenly help, when all is dependent on God's will, and when God's will seems unknowable or perhaps mysterious, how do I have faith that my petition will be granted? 
What do I have confidence in when I lack confidence in knowing God's will? Then I realized that we are not commanded to have faith in blessings, but in the giver of blessings. And the first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not faith in a charmed life free from trouble. God does not expect me to pray for Caroline with faith that she will be healed. He invites me to pray for her with faith in him, who is her eternal father and mine, and who will in his infinite wisdom do what is best, though it may cause her and me and him temporary anguish of soul. God takes the long view, and our ultimate good may mean short-term pain or confusion or heartache. In the midst of our adversity, it may be tempting to think that God has not fulfilled his promises, but we do not lean for repose on desired outcomes. As the song says, we lean for repose on Jesus, who will not desert us to our foes, though all hell may shake around us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exemplified this trust in God when they refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. Even threatened with the king's fury and fire, they defiantly declared, Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. But if not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not place their faith in blessings, but in the giver of blessings. Their trust in God was not dependent on deliverance from the fiery furnace. Therefore, they could go forward confidently, knowing that anything could happen, and they would still be secure in Christ. These faithful friends were cast into the fiery furnace before there was deliverance. And there were not three but four men in the flames, and the form of the fourth was like the Son of God. In the midst of their fiery trial, these three men who leaned for repose on Jesus, not on outcomes, communed with the Son of God. Such a sacred companionship in times of trouble can be our blessing as well. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When Caroline was five, she had a stretch of waking between 2 and 3 a.m. for many nights in a row. One night after this unwelcome wake-up call, I wrote this. Once you see Caroline, even at 2 a.m., it's hard to maintain your frustration. She smiles big when you lift her out of the beanbag she sleeps in, looking around curiously with those big, innocent eyes. As I was changing her diaper just now, I was absentmindedly singing one of the primary songs that Lizzie has declared we shall now sing for bedtime every night. God gave us families to help us become what he wants us to be. And I looked at Caroline, and suddenly the words came to the forefront of my consciousness an unexpected intersection between poetry and the reality of my life in that moment. God gave me a family, including this 2 a.m. waker, to help me become what he wants me to be. This is how he shares his love, the chorus continues, for the family is of God. 
That night, I felt a brief, blessed communion with God, a confirmation that he was personally aware of me and Caroline and our family. And he, my father, gave me encouragement by teaching me why we face such challenges. Because God loves us, he gives us experiences to help us become what he wants us to be. And he designed this fallen world with all its imperfections and fiery trials to accomplish that purpose. As the song says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When the early Latter-day Saints were driven by mob violence from Jackson County, Missouri, the Lord spoke to Joseph Smith and gave him perspective for such tribulations. They shall be mine, God said, in that day when I shall come to make up my jewels. Therefore they must be chastened and tried, even as Abraham. God is making us into jewels, fit for his kingdom. Think of the pressure required to form a diamond. For us to become the divine diamonds God wants us to be, we must endure some serious chastening. We often honor the faith that sustained pioneers in intense difficulties, but we should also recognize that those intense difficulties forged and refined their faith. Their hardships helped them become what God wanted them to be. As a young teenager, I read one day in the Book of Mormon about Lehi's dream, and I considered Nephi's description that the whiteness of the tree did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And I thought, how did Nephi know what snow looks like? I understood that Nephi grew up in Jerusalem, which has a Mediterranean climate, and that he had traveled through a desert and across an ocean to the tropical jungles of America. I thought, Nephi never saw snow. That thought troubled me. It appeared to be an inconsistency in the record, a possible evidence that the Book of Mormon was not true. With my young, developing faith, that was an earth-shaking thought. This issue nagged at me, but over the next several years I read the Book of Mormon probably a dozen times anyway, and my testimony of the book grew. But how could I believe so strongly in the Book of Mormon when I entertained a serious question about its consistency as a historical record? Did I lack intellectual integrity? Years later, as a returned missionary and BYU student, I read one day a news article about conflict in the Middle East, and I was startled to find a description of a snowy scene in Jerusalem. Wait a minute. It snows in Jerusalem? Who knew? As smart as I thought I was as a teenager, I wasn't all that smart. There was no problem in with Nephi's description of the tree. Nephi grew up in Jerusalem. It snows in Jerusalem. Now this may be a simple example, but the principle applies to greater challenges. We sometimes think we are pretty smart, and when something comes along that doesn't fit our way of thinking, such as information about church history, or snow in Jerusalem, or a temple marriage ends in divorce, or same-gender attraction, it shakes us up, and we may begin to question our beliefs. But maybe, like my trouble with Nephi and snow, we are just missing important perspective. 
Perhaps we need to be patient and wait for the resolution to come. I am moved by the story of the father who brought to the Savior his son, which hath a dumb spirit that teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth. Jesus told the father that all things are possible with faith. And the father cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Some may look on this father's faith as weak or incomplete, but in my own extremity, I feel keenly that father's wrestle with belief, and I admire his determined, humble declaration of imperfect faith. If faith were a simple, clear knowledge, it would not be so inspiring. This father's faith in seeking a blessing is powerful precisely because his faith was less than perfect. Despite uncertainty, despite years of desperate parental prayers that seemed to go unanswered, despite a failed blessing by the disciples, despite all of that, this father still sought from the Son of God the blessing for which he had longed for a lifetime. He chose to believe. Imperfect faith is still faith. By very definition, faith is incomplete. So if you feel a lack of clarity and a sure knowledge, that's okay. That is faith. Be patient with the imperfection of your faith. The incompleteness gives faith its power. Faith is a courageous, optimistic response to the ambiguity and adversity of this world. Faith is a choice to believe based on an incomplete and ever-changing body of data. Faith is saying, even though I am in pain, even though I am confused, even though I don't hear God's voice clearly, I still choose to believe. I will wait on the Lord. Patience is hard especially when we find the waters deep and the night dark. But remember what Moroni said, ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. The after means we must wait. Abraham and Sarah knew something of patience. They were promised a large posterity, a great nation, God said. As childless decade followed childless decade, the promise was repeated time and time again with no fulfillment. Yet against hope, they believed in hope. At long last, when they were 190 years old, Abraham and Sarah were blessed with Isaac, the child of promise. Yet even then, it was just a hope. Isaac was just one person. Sarah died without meeting her grandchildren or even her daughter-in-law. Abraham died when Isaac and Rebekah's two sons were still young. Several thousand years later, we now see the promises made to Abraham and Sarah richly fulfilled. But in their lifetimes, those promises must have seemed ridiculously out of reach. Through Isaiah, God used Abraham and Sarah as an example to encourage the Israelites in their faith. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Did Abraham and Sarah sometimes feel alone, perhaps overlooked or forgotten? 
The Septuagint, an early translation of the Old Testament, adds a brief phrase to Isaiah's message. In between blessed him and increased him, it inserts, and loved him. When you feel alone, when you think the promises of God may never be fulfilled for you, when you question what you believe, remember Abraham and Sarah. Remember that like them, you have been blessed and that you will be increased with time. God takes the long view, and it takes a lifetime to become what God wants us to be. So be patient, and in the waiting and the hoping, remember that, like Abraham and Sarah, you are loved. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal unchangeable love. Caroline is often sad and loud at church, or sometimes happy, but still loud. And Christine or Lizzie or I or a kind ward member will take her out to the foyer of the chapel, where we push Caroline around in her chair, calming her with the movement. In the foyer, we are joined by various people coming late to the meeting, chasing small children in and out of the chapel, or just enjoying the softer seating options. I have felt a sense of community in the foyer, a kinship with these others who, like us, find their situation not quite measuring up to the chapel ideal. I have also felt the spirit in the foyer as I walk figure eights with my daughter, and I have been impressed with this simple thought. The gospel is still true in the foyer. We all spend time in the foyer, figuratively speaking. We each face circumstances that make us feel on the margins of the congregation, looking into the chapel from the foyer. And that's okay, because the gospel is still true in the foyer. One Sunday a couple of years ago, I came to church pushing an especially sad Caroline, thinking we might just stay for the sacrament. As I walked the foyer and Caroline remained sad, I began to wonder if we would even make it to the sacrament. All my efforts to comfort her seemed fruitless, and Caroline's crying was certainly disturbing others. But then the sacrament hymn began, and Caroline calmed briefly when I started to sing. She quickly got fussy again, so I put my face close to hers, and I sang to her. She quieted and listened. The sacrament hymn that day was reverently and meekly now which is written in the first-person voice, as if the Savior were singing. Admittedly, I was focused on Caroline and not the song, until we came to the fourth verse, when I found myself singing these words to my daughter. I have loved thee as thy friend, with a love that cannot end. I looked into Caroline's big blue eyes, and I felt deeply the tender, personal truth of those words for my daughter. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, loves Caroline with a love that cannot end. Even there in the foyer, in her less-than-ideal state, Caroline is loved. When she is sad or hurting and her parents are clueless and incapable of comforting her, there is one who is her everlasting friend, who knows how she feels and how to succor her. The corollary is also true. Jesus is my friend.
and he is yours. He knows my frailties, including my frailties of faith, and he knows yours. And he loves us not in spite of those frailties, but with a full, compassionate understanding of them. He loves us in our crucible of spirit because he has felt what we feel, our doubt and our discouragement, as well as our sin and sorrow. I have sometimes thought that Jesus must have suffered for us in one great cosmic mass of suffering. But recently I have come to feel that he likely suffered for each of us in an individual, intimate way, one by one. He felt my specific sins and sorrows. He endured Caroline's particular afflictions and anguish. He experienced your individual infirmities and imperfections. And because he did, he knows how to help in every condition. In the words of the hymn, as thy days may demand, so thy succor shall be. That is why his grace is called amazing. It includes all people, which means you. It includes all time, which means now. It includes all pain, which means yours. The gospel tent is big enough for all of us with all our different difficulties because Jesus Christ's atonement is both infinite and intimate. In the foyer, our tribulations provide a workshop for the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. In the foyer, we face travails and distress that cause our very hearts to break and our spirits to become contrite. And in the foyer, the master healer takes our broken hearts and gives each of us a new heart, his heart, which was broken and then made whole for us. Recently, our family was having a lighthearted conversation about a momentous topic, my hair. <laughs> I asserted that in the resurrection, they won't even recognize me with my curly locks. Without a pause, Lizzie said, I think we will be too distracted by Caroline talking. We all laughed, but I was struck by the profound truth in her words. The salvation available to all of us through our great Redeemer is all-inclusive, encompassing my hair and Caroline's brain damage and everything in between. Jesus Christ's grace is amazing. His power to heal knows no bounds. Whatever your infirmity or sorrow or fiery trial of faith, His grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. Christine, Lizzie, and I share a firm foundation of faith in that truth, which has brought infinite reservoirs of hope to our lives. We know and we testify that Caroline's eternal identity is not defined by her mortal disability. A beautiful and glorious future awaits her because of Jesus Christ, who is also her friend and companion in her present distress. The same is true for you. Because of him, you have hope.
we all have hope for everlasting redemption. And because of him, we all have help in earthly anguish. So hold on, trust on, hope on. God loves you. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Overcoming Adversity and Trials. We've just heard from Jeffrey S. McClellan. After the break, we'll return with Beth Luthie for The Faith to Do His Will. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Overcoming Adversity and Trials. Next is Beth Luthie, a professor in the BYU College of Nursing, titled The Faith to Do His Will. For those of you who are here in the audience, and for those of you who are listening at home, I'd like for us to go on a journey together. The journey I'm going to ask you to take, however, won't be a vacation. In fact, it will likely be a little painful. You see, to go on this journey, I need you to reflect upon a moment in your life when you were surviving a trial, a painful, discouraging trial wherein you experienced intense suffering. I need you to go back to how you felt in the midst of the darkness, the loneliness, the anger, to the moment when you felt you could no longer endure the heartache. It is this state of suffering I'd like to focus on today. Our mortal life can be compared to a long journey. Sometimes the journey is easy for a time. The path is smooth, the warmth of the sun is comforting, and the light breeze is refreshing. And other times, what seems like most of the time, the journey is difficult. The terrain is steep and treacherous and fraught with all manner of obstacles, some of which cause us to trip or stumble on our way. And sometimes the journey requires us to shoulder much more of a burden, much more than we think we can carry. It is during these turbulent and troubling times of life that the journey compels us to descend into a dangerously deep valley, so deep that we are surrounded by numbing cold temperatures, so deep the descent seems like a bottomless chasm, so deep, in fact, that the unmitigated darkness causes us to question whether or not the sun still exists. It is under these inhospitable conditions that I reverently contemplate Jesus, willingly entering the Garden of Gethsemane to suffer for the sins of all mankind. It is difficult to imagine how he felt at that exact moment. We know from Matthew chapter 26 that the Savior earnestly prayed, asking the Father three times if there were another way to accomplish his purpose. In verse 39, it reads, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The Savior pleaded again in verse 42, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. In verse 44, the Savior prayed again a third time, saying the same words. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explains, The Lord said, in effect, If there is another path, I would rather walk it. If there is any other way, I will gladly embrace it. But in the end, the cup did not pass. Close quote. I stand all amazed at the Lord's response as recorded in Luke 22.42, which reads, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This means Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father in order to fulfill the need for an atonement. Jesus in perhaps one of the greatest examples of humility and faith, submits to the Father's will, even though it meant he would suffer unimaginable grief and incomprehensible sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. How can we have the faith and strength to follow the Savior's example, willingly submitting to our Father's will, even when we are in the throes of despair? First and foremost, I think we need to have a better understanding of the purpose of suffering. While no one escapes this life or journey without suffering, we are still conditioned as humans to avoid trials and adversity at all costs. Nevertheless, the amount of suffering in the world is all around. A quick check of the headlines confirm what I'm talking about—poverty, addiction, illness, violence, abuse, corruption. The list seems to go on and on. Why, you may ask, why does our Heavenly Father allow such horrifying events to happen to His cherished children? Why does He allow us to suffer? In his book, Why Is This Happening to Me?, the Reverend Wayne Monblow explains that one of the reasons God allows tribulation is to transform us into wounded healers, saying, quote, A wounded healer is someone who has suffered. But instead of being self-centered, the wounded healer sees suffering in another centered context with holy compassion and mercy for others. In other words, when we suffer, there is something deep within our soul that changes, that breaks, and then softens. We learn first-hand lessons about pain, anguish, misery, and torment. And then, because we know what it feels like to be wounded, we have compassion for others who are suffering and can help heal them. Essentially, our loving Heavenly Father uses times of suffering to transform us into an instrument in His hands, armed with a newly developed nobility of spirit who is compelled to relieve the suffering of his children. Think about it. Let's suppose for a moment that you have never experienced suffering. Maybe you had read about suffering. Maybe you have even studied suffering. But until you have survived the kind of heart-wrenching suffering that shakes you to your very core, how in the world could you ever develop compassion towards another human being? The answer is, you couldn't. I find it interesting that the word compassion comes from two Latin words, cum and passio. Cum means with or together, and passio means to suffer. 
Compassion, then, literally means to suffer with. One of my favorite authors and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, said, quote, What is to give light must first endure burning. Close quote. His quote summons the familiar imagery of the refiner's fire, where the fire, or the trials of life, reshapes us into someone better and stronger than we could have possibly imagined. Ask yourself, how has Heavenly Father used trials in your life to reshape you into a better 2.0 version of yourself? Sometimes we think we know, because of our best laid plans, what our final destination will be. Our Heavenly Father, however, may have a very different plan, a different final destination where, in the end, we learn to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. However, to successfully reach the destination Heavenly Father has in store and to become more like the Savior is not a pain-free journey. In essence, there is a price that must be paid in order to become intimately acquainted with our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. President David O. McKay shared an experience of those who traveled in the Martin Handcart Company saying, quote, A teacher conducting a class said it was unwise ever to attempt, even to permit, the Martin Handcart Company to come across the plains under such conditions. According to a class member, some sharp criticism of the Church and its leaders was being indulged in for permitting any company of converts to venture across the plains. An old man sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who heard him will ever forget. In substance, he said, I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes. But I was in that company, and my wife was in it. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart? No. Neither then nor any minute of my life since. The price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay. And I am thankful I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company. Close quote. It may seem a little messy from our limited and earthly perspective, but Heavenly Father knows exactly how to guide us to a better destination. Our Heavenly Father is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, omniscient, meaning He is all-knowing, and omnipresent, meaning He is always present, and He knows what He is doing. Author Max Licato has a great little saying he shares when he encounters those who are suffering. He says, quote, You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. Don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. Do you have faith that your Heavenly Father knows you so well He knows under what circumstances you will emerge as a stronger, albeit wounded, healer, so you'll become a valuable instrument in His hands to do His work and to comfort His children? Do you believe that God is good 
And is it possible that God is still good even when things go, well, badly? The answer is a resounding yes. Author Wayne Montblow explains that when things are going well and we are enjoying the magnificent view from the top of a mountain, we have more perspective and understand that the long and maybe dangerous climb up the trail to the top was all worth it. Problem is, no one can stay on top of the mountain for long. Eventually, all of us must walk down off the mountain and into a deep valley. We've all been there, or will be there. During those painful times, the times we spend deep in the valley, remember the promise in Psalms 104.10, which reads, He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. Think about that. The life-sustaining water is not found on the mountaintop. It is found in the valley. So when you are walking, as it says in Psalms 23.4, through the valley of the shadow of death, have no fear. God is with you. Trust Him. Trust that He will guide you through the valley. And look around. Look for the springs of living water when you are in the valley. When you drink from the living water, you will be sustained through the time of trial and eventually led back to the top of the mountain to sit for a while, where you can once again enjoy a magnificent view. It is imperative to trust Heavenly Father, even when His will seems contrary to your own. When I was 19 years old, my husband and I had our first son, Michael. At birth, Michael's bile ducts were damaged, which meant the bile had no way to exit his liver. Instead, the backup of bile caused extensive liver damage. His damaged liver grew to twice its normal size, encroaching on his stomach and making it difficult to eat. His eyes and skin slowly turned yellow. He developed abscesses of infection throughout his liver. At eight weeks of age, Michael had his first surgery to try to correct the structure of his bile ducts. Then, at nine weeks of age, Michael had another surgery. Months went by. Our son seemed perpetually stuck in the intensive care unit, completely dependent on the miracle of modern medicine. Then came the day that specialists told us Michael wouldn't survive much longer if he didn't receive a liver transplant. And so our request for a transplant went out to every hospital in the United States doing pediatric liver transplants at the time. By the time Michael was nine months old, his future looked bleak. We received word that no hospital would accept Michael as a patient on the transplant waiting list because his portal vein, which is a major blood vessel to the liver, was too small and unlikely to support the blood flow needed for a new liver. My husband and I prayed constantly, asking Heavenly Father for a miracle. And I have to say that God was good. Seemingly from out of nowhere, the transplant team at the University of Nebraska Medical Center changed their mind and agreed to take Michael as a patient, but only under one condition. We needed to move to Omaha. We didn't know anyone in Omaha, but we again prayed for help and again another miracle. God was good. 
My in-laws knew someone in their ward that used to go to church with another family who they think was still somewhere in Omaha. And as it turns out, the Halls, George and Jenny, were still in Omaha and came to the rescue, allowing me to stay with them while my husband finished his military training. We were in Omaha just over two months when another miracle happened. Michael received his liver transplant, and yet again, God was good. Most of the first year and a half of Michael's life was spent in the intensive care unit, and that year I can testify that I witnessed one miracle right after another. It was a tough time, but I could also see that during that time my family was blessed on many occasions. Then the bottom fell out. You see, I thought our family was already enduring suffering in the valley, but then came to realize the valley was much deeper than I imagined it could be. Michael caught a severe infection. At the time, he was taking immune suppression medication, which kept his immune system from attacking his new liver. The trade-off was that his immune system wasn't able to protect itself from infections either. I watched in horror as he went from an active 18-month-old who was running around and playing to laying unresponsive in a hospital bed in less than 24 hours. His blood pressure dropped. His heart rate dropped. He went into shock. He started seizing. He quit breathing. The physicians frantically intubated him so a respirator could breathe for him. They desperately tried to maintain a blood pressure by infusing IV fluids as quickly as they could. The fluid eventually found its way into Michael's lungs, which became stiff and difficult to inflate with oxygen. To overcome this issue, the pressure was turned up on the respirator, which in turn caused his lungs to collapse. There was one problem right after another. Again, my husband and I prayed for a miracle. This time, however, the miracle did not come as I had expected. Michael was comatose for almost six months. Every day was a horrific roller coaster ride. One day he would be stable, the next day he would almost die. Then Michael's condition took a dreadful turn for the worst, and this time he continued to steadily deteriorate. The transplant team requested a family meeting. As we walked into the consultation room, I thought, okay, this can't be good. I remember them saying that they couldn't do anything else to save Michael's life. The only option left was to sustain him on a new and, at the time, experimental heart and lung bypass machine called ECMO. That meant that Michael would have to endure yet another surgery. There was no guarantee that the surgery would work and that Michael would live, but he would surely die if we took no action. My husband and I looked at each other, took a deep breath, and told the physicians that we wanted to try the surgery. Then my husband asked if we could have a quiet moment in the room with Michael before the surgical team took him to the operating room. We shut the door to his room, and my husband and I stood on either side of Michael's crib looking across at each other. I took one of Michael's little hands and tenderly held it in my own. 
and closed my eyes as my husband offered a priesthood blessing. The blessing was the most beautiful blessing I'd ever heard. My husband spoke calmly and deliberately. I patiently waited for the part of the blessing when my husband would bless Michael with the power to overcome his illness. I had the faith that Michael would survive if my husband would just speak the words in the blessing. Toward the end of the blessing, my husband's voice cracked with emotion. Michael, he said, as your parents, we love you very much, but we also know that your Father in Heaven loves you and wants what is best for you. Michael, if it is Heavenly Father's will that you return to Him at this time, know that we will always love you and we will be okay. We will in time heal and we will at some point be together again as a family. I started to tremble and cry uncontrollably. I opened my eyes and looked at my husband. Now, I use the word look, but it probably looked a little more like a glare, like... I couldn't believe what he had said. No, it was all wrong. He was supposed to bless Michael to get better. My husband blessed him wrong. I wanted to call for a do-over, but I figured that wouldn't be appropriate. Heavenly Father couldn't take my only child away from me. We'd survived so much and against all odds. Why? Why would Heavenly Father get us this far only to call Michael home? For a fleeting moment, I couldn't help but think, if God lets Michael die, then I will know that God is, in fact, not good. My husband looked at me with a sad but determined expression and said, it's time we turn this over to Heavenly Father and His will. We need to have the faith to let Michael go, if that's what he wants. I was angry, I was sad, I wanted to scream, but I also couldn't deny how strong the spirit was in the room. The two of us stood in silence for a few seconds with only the sound of the heart monitor bleeping in the room. Okay, I finally said, if it's Heavenly Father's will, I'll accept it. I remember walking with the surgical team to the end of the hall, Michael in his crib, surrounded by half a dozen people pushing his bed and all the life-sustaining machinery and tubes that were attached to him. My husband and I kissed Michael, told him that we loved him, and went back to the waiting room where the surgeon would be able to find us to report on Michael's condition after attempting the surgery. About 30 minutes later, Michael was wheeled back to the ICU, right past the waiting room where my husband and I were seated. We were confused. We had been told that the surgery would take several hours. As we stood up to follow the entourage of medical professionals pushing Michael back into the ICU, the surgeon caught us. I don't know what happened, he said. But before we started the surgery, Michael's condition stabilized. At this point, We don't need to resort to surgery. We'll wait and see if he continues to stabilize. And stabilize, he did. 
That day was a major turning point in Michael's recovery. Every day he continued to improve. He never needed the surgery, and a few months later he came home for the first time in almost a year. It was another miracle, and God was good. The story has a good ending. Today, Michael is 30 years old, happily married with an adorable son, and is sitting with my family in the second row. The question remains, though, if Michael would have died that day in the ICU, would that mean that God was somehow missing, that God didn't care, or that God was not good? I testify that Heavenly Father remains all-powerful, all-knowing, and is ever-present. I learned in a very painful way a profound lesson that day, that I needed to have faith in God the Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ. I needed the faith to accept Heavenly Father's will, regardless of what that entailed. And I needed the faith to maintain my testimony in times of happiness and in times of sorrow, during my time on the mountaintop and while in the valley. My dear brothers and sisters, I testify of our Heavenly Father's goodness. I testify that He loves each of us and wants what is best for us. I know that sometimes what He sees as our final destination isn't always the same as what we have in mind. There will be trials and suffering in life. I testify, however, that it is important to trust God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, whether you are on the mountaintop or deep in the valley. They love you. And when you are asked to take a journey to the lowest part of the valley, to your own personal Gethsemane, have faith. Don't stop believing. Keep on going. And always look for the sweet spring of living water to sustain you during the most troubling times. Follow the example of the Savior and know that God will always use this mess for good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Overcoming Adversity and Trials with thoughts from Jeffrey S. McClellan and Beth Luthie. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.